The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Look with me in Acts chapter 15. We're going to look at the first paragraph to begin to work our way through it. The gospel work has been happened, has happened, uh, and now what happens in Acts 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. What were they teaching? Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you, underline, cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent, commissioned, on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria describing in detail the, con the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may this his word be preached for you. Please be seated. Well, um, keep this passage in front of you, please. And um, it's great to see you this Lord's Day. Great to be back from the General Assembly. Great to see you. Hopefully you're going to enjoy this couple of days of our national holidays and even as we consider how God providentially has blessed this nation through the work of the gospel and his church and what yet could be done. And so we give thanks for that and we look at it. And, um, of course, it's kind of wondering who would be here, the way the holidays fell out and everything. So I'm glad to see you. I, on days like this, I realize I am seeing people uh, who um, either don't own or don't know anybody with, with a place at the beach of the mountains. So I'm glad to see you here uh, and to join us together on this Lord's Day to worship our God and to give him praise and glory and honor. Well, we're back from General Assembly. We spent an entire Sunday night. We spent weeks working up to it, uh, praying about it because of some of the encroachments that out of the evangelical church that is coming into and had begun to work their way over these last couple of years into the Presbyterian Church in America, which made this 48th General Assembly and the issues it was addressing even more profound. Now, put, that, put a full stop on that just for a moment. But why a General Assembly? Why is that happening? Um, can you back up with me just a little bit and... Um, and let me kind of work with you. I'll start personally, if you don't mind. Um, and years ago, in the early 1980s, as I was graduating from seminary, I was really uh, working through, in my heart, 
where the Lord would lead me. I knew he was calling me full-time into ministry and had already wrestled with that, but where? What would I do? There were a number of options before me at the time, and I was prayerfully considering them. One was an itinerant ministry. Uh, A second one was um, joining a parachurch uh, group to do ministry. Uh, Both of those were um, um, opportunities that stood before me. Um, And then in God's uh, kind providence, a number of things happened for me. Let me share with you one. One is... Uh, in God's providence, I began to meet some people who would uh, take up a role in my life of uh, challenging, encouraging, and mentoring me. Uh, there was a pastor by the name of Al Martin, Dr. Henry Cravendam. Um, and then I remember uh, meeting uh, um, this uh, guy from a little church over there in Birmingham named Dr. Frank Barker. And then um, another guy that was, uh, came in and we got the chance to get to know each other. Uh, it was while before he even moved to Orlando with Ligonier Studies. He was still up in Ligonier Valley, R.C. Sproul, and, and then Jim Boyce. And these, these are people that I met, and they, as I began to listen to them, I was not only drawn theologically, but I was drawn ecclesiastically, church-wise. Every one of these men were churchmen. They loved the Lord's church. Uh, the church didn't exist to give them a job. The church existed to the glory of God, and they wanted to be invested in it. They challenged me in that area, and and I just sensed it, and I felt it. Another providence that happened at that time is, as I was finishing up my seminary work, I began to do some focused work on the theology of the cross itself. You are, you know, you know, as much as we, of course, preach and believe the virgin birth, and as much as we rejoice in the resurrection, and as much as we praise God for the ascension and the second coming of Christ, the crux even comes from the word cross. The crux of Christianity is the cross. When Paul wants to talk about the gospel in shorthand, he'll say the word of the cross. Why? Because at the cross, the holiness of God meets the love of God to save sinners by the grace of God to the glory of God. There is where it meets. That's the glorious moment. And, um, and then when I began to just do the deep dive in the cross, it became obvious that to me, at least, from the word of God, that when Jesus went to that cross, he did three things. Number one, you know one of the things he did. He saved his people from their sins. You shall call his name Yeshua, Yahweh, saves. You shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. The second thing, that when Jesus goes to the cross, here's what the Bible says, that, the, that Jesus Christ has come into the world to defeat and destroy the works of the evil one. At the cross, he bound the strong man and who can no longer stop the truth from going to the nations through his deception. And now we are free by the grace of God to go into all of the world with the gospel that came to the Jew first and now to all of the world. But the third thing, And I'll never forget when I saw it. You know that wonderful passage that 
well, maybe your wife isn't like my wife who sometimes has been commissioned by the Holy Spirit to leave certain texts of scriptures out for me to see, uh, such as Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved what? And gave himself for her. You know, our American individualism, I think we lose this, that Jesus not only went to the cross to save his people personally, but to save his church corporately. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So declares the Lord. As Christ loved the church, and if I love him, Will I not love what he loves? And if I rejoice in my redemption at the cross and his defeat of the evil one and death and hell and the grave, then will I not rejoice in his victory for his church, which he purchased, ransomed, redeemed with his own blood? Or that marvelous text in Ephesians 20, as Paul gave his life to plant the church at Ephesus and was there for three years of his life, and as he finished his ministry, knowing he would be going back to Jerusalem, already knowing he's going to be arrested, he's going to be put in prison, and it will begin that movement ultimately till his death in a Roman imprisonment, a second Roman imprisonment. As he anticipates that, he gathers the elders together with him at the port city of Miletus, and he says to them, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God, the church of God. Now listen to this next text. Listen to this next statement, which he purchased with his own blood. So I tell you, I'm an unabashed, out of my love to Christ, I'm an unabashed um, churchman. I love the church. And I tell you, I've, um, I love the church, and, and it came home to me in a very special way in a PCA church in 1981. As I went, not yet ordained, but serving as a student pastor in a PCA church in Miami, Florida, I went to my first general assembly, I was not a commissioner because I wasn't ordained, but as I went there, I remember reading and listening. And another gentleman that I had been with for a number of years who we'd been friends growing together in the Lord, we stood there at Coral Ridge Presbyterian and I said to him, I said, you know, I feel like uh, it's almost a taste of the new heavens and the new earth. I love the church, and here I have found a church that, that not only church government ecclesiastically I can embrace. I had already become convinced of that. It wasn't hard. Every time I looked in the Bible and I see the word church and the word elder, elder is plural. The word elder is presbyteros. That is the plurality of elders govern the church, not one man. So it's not a bishopric system, nor do the sheep just govern themselves, but the sheep select for themselves according to the direction of God's word, those whom God has called and gifted to uh, watch over them, care them, lead them, feed them. 
And so there is that local church overseen by the session. And I saw that and I rejoiced in that. But more than that, I looked and had studied the Westminster Standards. What a glorious distillation. Now, it's not inerrant, but what a glorious distillation of God's inerrant truth. And I was so drawn there. So there was the church government. And then I sat and listened to the heart of this denomination to reach the world for Christ. I heard their mission statement, faithful to the scriptures, true to the reformed faith, obedient to the great commission. And I turned to my friend and I said, I praise God I'm somewhere where there is a passionate evangelical thrust to reach the world for Christ, yet an unabashed, passionate um, commitment to the theology of truth. There's breadth and there's depth. I had been engaged in various situations, and some of them, there was a glorious desire to reach the world for Christ, but there was no attention given to sound doctrine. So it would be five miles wide and one inch deep. Then I would, in reaction, find myself with other brothers, and they also were in, re- in reaction. And, there, and the church was one inch wide and five miles deep. Or like in one situation where the gentleman said, um, said, okay, who here have we led to Christ? Oh, they had their truth lined up, but nobody, they weren't winning anybody to Christ. And I felt there, not a perfect church by any means, but in that, standing there at that general assembly, I just sensed with all of its imperfections, it was not a, it was not a, a Pollyanna look at all, but I realized that principally, not only was there a biblical polity, church government, but there was a commitment to the depth of theology, Reformation theology, and the breadth of winning the world to Christ and for Christ by the grace of God and to the glory of God. So I invested myself. As far as general assemblies go, by God's kind providence, I've not missed a single one now in 40-plus years. I've had the privilege to preach to seven of them, and I've only spoken on the floor two times. I didn't even get a chance to speak this time. I did stand up three times to speak, and when they saw me stand up, somebody called the question, and I never got a chance to speak. I think it was, I, did, I tried not to take it personally, but I do think it might have been aimed that way. And, um, but I, so I, I love, so I'm unabashed about this. I, um, and I ha, I'm fully aware that we're the Presbyterian Church in America. Please pay close attention to the language. We're not of America. This isn't America's church. This is Christ's church. And we reside in this nation. And that governs a lot that we do. For instance, when God allows us to do our mission to the world, Briarwood, we've been able to do this two different times. Where we've been able to be a part of planting an entire denomination in another nation. You'll notice those, those denominations like, for instance, New Zealand. They're not called the Presbyterian Church of America in New Zealand. They're called the Presbyterian Church in New Zealand. 
And that's what we do. We play at churches and local churches and local localities, presbyteries and regions and general assemblies in nations. And then from those nations, those churches join us in sending gospel missionaries around the world. But the church of Jesus Christ needs to be shepherded. The church of Jesus Christ is the assembly of the saints of God. It happens in three ways. One is the local church in a locality where we assemble together and we take our membership covenant vows together to serve the Lord together uh, in the Lord and for the Lord. And it's overseen by elders. But the churches in a region, like a presbytery, that's called a presbytery, a presbyteron, the gathering of the elders from the churches in the region, such as the seven churches. The seven churches in the book of Revelation are all individually local churches, but as the seven configured together as a circle around Christ in the middle, they're a church also regionally, a presbytery. And then there is the general assembly, and here you read of the first general assembly in the 2100-year history of the church as it happens here in Jerusalem. Theological issues have come up. They've got to provide help to the presbyteries and the local churches, specifically an issue of first order. False teachers had gone out from Jerusalem and Judea to all the churches that had been planted in predominantly Gentile areas. And the teachers claimed to be credentialed from Jerusalem, although you'll find in just a moment they weren't. But they came and said to those Gentiles who had come to Christ and were baptized in the name of Christ, that first of all, they had to obey the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. Specifically, they had to be circumcised. Otherwise, now please note the language I just read. They were quoted as saying, unless you obey the law of Moses in circumcision, you, did you hear the language? You cannot be saved. That's what we call legalism. That's when you tell people, this is what you must do in order to be saved or to stay saved or to let God save you. That's legalism. There are two great errors to the gospel. Think of the gospel as the highway of life. And on the one side is a ditch and on the other side is a ditch. The ditch on one side is legalism. Legalism is when you attach something that you do as a work as as necessary for God to be able to save you. Christians do works, but we don't do works to be saved. Our works are the evidence of our salvation, not the ground of our salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the, even the faith that you have is a gift from God, not of works, lest any man should boast." Well, as soon as this glorious gospel of grace, you can see how people would be tempted to pervert it to, well, if I'm not saved through my obedience to God's word, then 
hey, I can, uh, what is it? One guy said, here's the verse of their hymn, uh, is, um, saved by grace, oh, wonderful condition. I can sin like I want and still have remission. Well, that's not true. That's not true at all. Because the Bible says that if you are saved, the evidence will be your works. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Next verse. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he has prepared beforehand and called us to walk in them. So the works are not the ground of our salvation, but they are the evidence of our salvation. So we say no to libertinism and we say no to legalism. And what we proclaim is that Christ, who at the cross did the work of our salvation and now ascended, works on those who are saved. He worked, he did the work for our redemption. Now he is working on the redeemed and the evidence is changed lives to his glory. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So in this early church, the very gospel. Folks, you can't get more basic in Christian doctrine than the gospel. That's why Paul said, I delivered to you that which is of first importance, the gospel. And the gospel was under attack. So what did these local churches and presbyteries that were being disturbed do? Well, the apostles and the elders called a general assembly, a convocation. So you not only had the local church overseen by shepherd uh, elders, as they shepherd and feed and lead the flock, but you had a presbytery. And the presbytery was gathered by the elders in the region like the seven churches. And now you have a general assembly. And thus you see biblical polity through the governing of a plurality of presbyters. And you see them handle the theological issues. Now what happened in that first general assembly? Well, what happened there is also what just happened last week in our general assembly. They dealt with theological issues with an orderly yet passionate debate to determine not what says the church, but what says the scripture to the church. And so that's what they went about. Now, this is kind of, you're kind of looking back at the records of the first general assembly. And uh, so if you will, look with me at it. Go back with me to that Acts 15 text and follow along with me just for a moment and see what it says. So they are there and they've come together and they've identified the problem. And the problem is, has been introduced. Can I show you one more thing, though, from what I just read to you? Go back to chapter 15 and verse 5. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So, in other words, where did this theological error come from? Now, don't miss this, please. Don't miss this. Where did the theological error come from? Not from wolves in sheep's clothing, but from sheep, believers. 
believers who had who were wearing wolves clothing. Now, no, I want you to see a couple of things. Number one, the church is not so relationally crippled that they can't go to one another as believers and say, you are wrong. I still love you. I still love you. I'm not even doubting your motivation. But what you're teaching is wrong. I believe you're a sheep. (laughs) But we can't let stand wrong doctrine and and adulterate the gospel. And secondly, please realize when you're dealing with other people, when they get something wrong, don't assume that they're out to destroy things. That's where we are right now. In the twenty in the twentieth century, there were some quote unquote believers, professing believers, who were convinced with the rise of modernity that the church was going to be put, and I quote them, on the dustbin of history. The church was going to be carried off into oblivion. The church was going to be on the wrong side of history. So they started a movement called liberal, meaning freer thinking Christianity. What was their motivation? It wasn't to destroy the church. It was to save the church. From cultural irrelevance in the the, the, uh, 19th century and into the 20th century. Their motivation, that was their motivation, save the church from cultural. Their mission, we are going to transform. The next century is going to be, this was their language, the Christian century. They even started a magazine called the Christian century. This this Christian post-millennial utopia is going to be ushered in. And all of the mainline Protestant denominations grabbed hold of this motivation, save the church from irrelevance. We're going to make the church relevant in our day. And and we're going to transform the culture with the church in our day. Well, motivation and mission always determine message. So then, liberal Christianity gave birth to liberal theology. Because as they looked at the modern man and the modern mind, they won't accept this holiness of God, this inerrancy of the Bible. A book over 1,600 years doesn't have any mistakes. Nobody's going to believe that. The resurrection of the third day resurrection of Christ, a virgin birth. No, no, no. Those things can't be. Listen, we're not, they're going to laugh at us. So then, from cultural relevance to cultural transformation, the message became cultural magisterium. The culture determined the message of the church instead of biblical magisterium. Sola Scriptura, the Scripture alone, is our only rule of faith and practice. So they went through and began to vacuum out of the confession anything that was supernatural, anything that was offensive to the culture in cultural accommodation. What did that do? Did it rescue the church? No. It put mainline Protestant Christianity on the real road to oblivion. But rising up was an evangelical church. 
that said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to be faithful. But in the late 20th century, cut from the same bolt of cloth as liberal Christianity comes progressive Christianity. The same mantra, save the church for the next generation. We're going to lose all of our children if we keep believing these things. You know, a, a God who requires the death of his son to save us from sins. And then, um, and you can't solve the issues of the day, racism and sex trafficking and this and that and the other with that outmoded message. And so we've got to get up to date. So progressive Christianity also was going to save the church from Christian, uh, was going to save the church from irrelevance and was going to cause the human flourishing. In the 21st century, we will, um, we will raise up the city. We will, uh, we will take the city forward. We will take humanity for, forward. Cultural transformation. Well, what is the result? The result, just like liberal Christianity produced liberal theology, progressive Christianity with the wrong motivation and the wrong mission has produced progressive Christianity. And it strikes at the gospel. So issues such as sexually addicted sins. Oh, you can be forgiven, but not necessarily transformed. You just have to manage the sin. And the desire is not sin. It's just of sin, but it's not sin. And the very vitals of the gospel are being attacked again. This time, not with legalism, but with libertinism. And with a loss of hope. And that the issues of discrimination and prejudice that are issues of the heart, what we really need is just change the sociology of the culture, the politics of the culture. Make the oppressors the oppressed and the oppressed the oppressors. No restitution, no reconciliation, no redemption, no repentance, just penance. Just hatred and division and polarization. And so progressive Christianity opens the door for the social, political, and economic tools of the age in place of the life-changing gospel, which makes you right before God and sets you free from the power of sin so you can begin to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Strikes at the heart. And I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But evangelical Christianity, if it continues to allow progressive Christianity in its, in, the, in its pulpits, in its seminaries, and in its churches, then evangelical churches in the next 20 years will be just as empty as the mainline Protestant churches are. It even found its way into the PCA over these last couple of years. And we said, this General Assembly is going to be crucial. And it was. And I want to tell you, it's very hard for me not to get emotional right now. But I thank God for the hundreds of people last week that were back here praying along with thousands around uh, the world in the PCA. I thank God for our elders who I have the enormous privilege to serve with and under the pastoral staff, 
that I serve alongside. I praise God that in this last week I saw something happen that I never thought would happen. I confess. And by the way, I am not a pessimistic person. I just did not think the substance and scope of what I saw happen with the overtures that were approved. Now, let me be clear. Please be back for a fuller report because we have not won a war on this thing. In the evangelical church, for sure, and even in our own denomination, the very things that were passed gloriously and resoundingly, and I praise God for it, the very things that were passed now have to go through presbyteries. They now have to get voted by two-thirds. All of that has yet to be done. Uh, can I give you a picture? What ha- I, t- I said what happened last week was like D-Day. The beach was taken The cliffs were taken. Now, hedgerow by hedgerow and village by village have to be taken in the coming months and years. Error and the doctrines of demons can get in quickly and deeply. And it's not just wolves. It's sheep who hear the terms and think they have the same dictionary, but they don't. Same vocabulary, but not the same dictionary. Who see the issues and want these issues to be dealt with. So they're willing to give things an ear. But then sometimes the things that you've listened to need to be jettisoned. But they've got, they've got substance and traction. And they have to be dug out by prayer and love and patience. And uh, iron sharpening iron. That all has to be done, but I never expected to be where I am today on these issues. God was gracious, and I give him praise and thanksgiving, and I'm grateful to all who prayed. I'm grateful for all the elders who prepared and participated and engaged. I'm grateful for the deacons and their support. I am so grateful for all of that. There's yet much to be done, but God gave some glorious victories. Now, what does that look like? Can I just finish reading this text, and then I'll give you a takeaway, and, um, and then we're, we're done. Look with me what happens in this general assembly. The apostles, and this is what happened last week. The apostles and the elders were gathered together. There's the assembly. The national gathering, the, uh, they were gathered together to consider this matter. That is the authenticity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And after there had been much debate, well, let me assure you, that happened last week. Listen, when you get Presbyterian teaching and ruling elders together, 2,100 of them, not only does everyone think they need to say something, well, Harry, what if it's already been said? Oh, well, that doesn't count. Not, most pastors, not only, and elders in the PCA, not only believe they need to say it, uh, and not only believe that everything needs to be said, but they believe it hasn't been said until they've said it at the microphone. So there was much debate. And as there was much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, You know that in the early days of God, in the early days, God made a choice among you that my mouth, that by my mouth, the Gentiles shall hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, what is he referring to? 
Remember the great commission? You shall make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Remember Acts chapter 1. You'll receive the, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world. Well, that's exactly what happened. The book of Acts records the gospel in Jerusalem, Acts 1 through 8. The gospel in Judea and Samaria, Acts 9 through 12. Then the gospel to the world, Acts 13 through 28. And, but, but the apostle Peter says, God in his appointment used me in his sovereign plan to go and the very first Gentiles were brought into the kingdom. And you'll remember that was the centurion at Caesarea by the sea by the apostle Paul and his, I mean the apostle Peter and his ministry and affirmed that God was not only saving Jewish the Jewish ethnicity but also the gentiles from all the nations and then he says and then he says so God used me for the very first gentiles to hear the gospel and believe verse 8 and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the holy spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. In other words, how were they saved? Not by circumcision. They were saved by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the, ne on the, ne on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But in other words, we can't get saved through obedience to the law. Only Christ can have a perfect obedience and then pay the penalty at the cross for our disobedience. So don't put on them the yoke that Christ took off of them in his substitutionary sacrifice. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Jew, Gentile, matters not. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Then what does he say? And all the assembly, there's that general assembly, and all the assembly fell silent. Now, there's miracle number two. Miracle number two. And they listened to, to uh, Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And they finished speaking. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, as referring to Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them, to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written. Now, do not miss this. Do not miss this. James, who is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, after the debate, after Peter, after Paul, after Barnabas, he stands up and says, gentlemen, you can't miss this. What we are not going to believe the gospel truth simply because of the anecdotal evidences of Peter and Paul and Barnabas. We believe it because the anecdotal evidences are evidences of what God's word says. And he appeals to the scripture that God is going to save for himself in the new covenant a people from the Jews and the Gentiles. He quotes from the Old Testament. After this, 
I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind, that is the saved remnant, may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things, knowing them from old. In other words, I'm going to take them from the tent of David, Jews, and I'm going to take them from the Gentiles. And everything we're hearing is built upon the truth of God's word. It is not anecdotal evidence that establishes doctrine. It's God's word that established it and won the day in that general assembly. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols. In other words, you're giving pastoral advice of how to live their Christian life now and how to, um, and how to honor the Lord and how to do effective Jewish evangelism because there are Jewish people in every city. And from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every... Uh, every Sabbath in the synagogue. So they then sent a letter. And then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. In other words, the general assembly reported out their decisions on affirming the gospel truth. And then they sent it out. And that's what I'm doing today. I'm giving you a report, a preliminary report. Uh, Next Sunday night, uh, you'll have another report from one of our elders. We'll also have a written report. And, we're, and so all the churches hear the reports from the commissioners who had been sent to the General Assembly. So here's what they do. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letters. The brothers, both the apostles and the office, elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words uns- uh, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. In other words, we didn't send them there. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you can trust these men that they are carrying a true uh, recommendation and resolution from this general assembly. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Isn't it interesting that General Assembly after General Assembly always has to deal with the issue of biblical sexuality? Always. And here we are in another generation. The sanctity of gender, the sanctity of sex, the sanctity of sexuality, the sanctity of family, the sanctity of marriage, that those things have to be addressed, but they can't be, you can't impact the culture unless we address them upon ourselves that we are conforming for God's glory to his word in these matters. Thus, our overtures in this general assembly concerning biblical sexuality concerning sufficiency of Scripture, concerning all of these crucial issues were of importance, and those things have been addressed now for 2,100 years because Satan does not stop his imitation, his infiltration, and his intimidation. 
So he says, you see, and so then he says, um, he says, um, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together. So they come back to the local church to deliver the contents of the general assembly. They delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. So I'm grateful that our elders wanted me to open the door for us in this matter, and then our other, and one of our elders will speak to you pointedly in two weeks. And Silas, who themselves, uh, who were themselves prophets, preachers, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So then they resumed the life of the local church to get the business of the Lord done as they would serve the Lord with all of their heart. So let me give you the takeaway, and then we'll close in prayer. By God's grace and for his glory, a great commitment to fulfill the great commission and embrace the great commandment. So brothers and sisters, where do we go from here? Let's get back to business. We've got to carry through these overtures and bring them into the life and ministry of the PCA. In the meantime, let's have a great commitment to do the great commission. To embrace the great commandment. The great commandment, just think of the culture in a church where the people there build a culture not on the basis of our cultural preferences, but the Word of God. To love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And then to love one another, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Men and women made in the image of God, no distinctions ethnically, racially economically, socially, regionally, but we're one in Christ. In Christ, neither Jew nor Gentile, but we build that culture where they marvel at how we love one another that proclaims the integrity when we tell those who are not yet in Christ, we want you to come to Christ because we love you. What would that look like? It would look like a church that is seeking to be God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, Spirit-filled, Bible-preaching, disciple-making. It would be a church that loves the exaltation ministry of worship on the Lord's Day. It would look like a church that every day is evangelizing. You know my five E's, everybody evangelizing everywhere, every day, everyone. It would be a church that enfolds believers and their households into a culture, a great commandment culture of loving one another with truth and love, with clarity and charity. It would look like an equipping church where people are in small groups being discipled. I love what Edmund Burke calls it, the little platoons. I love to see it at the Cracker Barrel. I'll see three at a time. I love to see it in the fellowship hall. I love to see it on Wednesday nights. People getting in these little platoons of men and women and couples and singles, and they're all gathering together, and they're seeing the work of the Lord being done, and they're a part of the work of the Lord that is being done. So I believe that's where we go. So what did Paul and Peter do? Uh, What did Paul do? He says to Barnabas, let's go do it again, and the second missionary. So folks... Let's do it again. 
Would you join us, us all together, into the PCA and from the PCA to our nation and from our nation to the world, a great commitment to fulfill the great commission and embrace the great commandment. I love a moment. I get to take people up to a very uh, place um, about two blocks from the church that William Penn the Quaker church. I'm about two blocks from there where George Whitfield stood and preached. And when I stood there, I was standing there and I shared with the group that was with me. Right where I'm standing, Benjamin Franklin stood. And you know what he said as he listened to George Whitfield preach? This is what he said. It looks like the whole world is going to church. I would love to have tapped him on the shoulder and say, you know why that looks that way? Because the whole church loves Jesus and is going to the world to win them to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the moments we have been together in your word. Um, friend, if you're here today and you heard that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you know you're a sinner and you want to come to Christ, May I invite you up here to the front afterwards. There will be some of our elders and their wives here that can pray confidentially with you. And then, Father, I pray for us. God, thank you again for these elders, these deacons, these, the hundreds of people, our wives, uh, the singles, so many who prayed so hard for this last week. And you did beyond what we could imagine or think. The scope and the substance was overwhelming. Now help us not to rest on laurels, but to move out, not only in our denomination, but into this world with a great commitment to the Great Commission and live the Great Commandment on mission, on message, and in the ministry of truth and love. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader. Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.